welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What role, if any, does ethical or moral truth have in a naturalistic universe? In a world whose fundamental truths are those described by science, those of observation, those that are demonstrable under the microscope, those that are governed by natural laws, In a world made up of electrons and neutrons and everything made out of those things, what room is there to say that we ought to do something, or that we ought not to have done something? The question's always interested me, because it seems obvious that that is the world that we live in, and that any account of morality must be an account that's developed consistent with those underlying truths of how the universe works. Nonetheless, we all seem to have an intuition that there must be something spooky going on. There must be something weird, there must be some divine foundation, or even for those of us who don't believe in God, something coming in from outside to get ethical systems up and running. But that's probably an illusion, and there probably never was anything spooky going on at all, and any account we develop has to be consistent with that. So, in this episode and the following episode, this is the first part of a two-parter, Professor Philip Pettit will be returning to the podcast to offer his answer to that challenge. I normally, when I do multi-parters, say you can listen to them in any order, you know, pick and choose as you see fit, For this one, I'm going to make something of an exception and say that both halves of this interview make sense together. Now, that's not to say you have to listen to them in a single sitting, and I think the end of this episode is a fairly natural break or pause point, but unlike some of the more discursive interviews I've done, this really is a single sustained argument, and I'm really excited to bring you this because I think it's an argument that makes a lot of sense and is accessible, but really gets to something fundamental about what we are as people and what it is to be moral that doesn't rely on any, there's no gaps, there's no ghosts in the machine. This is an account of morality that fully squares with a naturalistic universe, with the rules of science. So I really encourage you to listen and see what you make of it. As always, please do send me comments, questions, concerns, angry outbursts. I'd be interested to know what people's reaction to this is. This is a conversation I really enjoyed having and I've got something out of personally. So I hope you do too. My guest for this conversation is Professor Philip Petter, who will be familiar to long-time listeners of the podcast. He was on in season one, where he discussed and defended a neo-republican theory of freedom, contrasted with a neoliberal or libertarian theory of freedom, and he's very generously agreed to come back on the podcast to discuss his latest work, The Birth of Ethics, where he offers a reconstructive or genealogical account of the origins of morality that attempts to ground ideas of desirability and ideas of responsibility in a world that is discoverable under the microscope. So, Professor Philip Pettit is the Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University, and he holds a joint position there with the Australian National University in Canberra, 
where he's the distinguished university professor of philosophy. So he spends half his year in Australia and half in America. He was born and raised in Ireland, where he was the lecturer at University College Dublin, a research fellow at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and professor of philosophy at the University of Bradford, before moving in 1983 to the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University, and he held a professorial position there jointly in social and political theory until 2002. He's the author of a large number of single-authored books, including, but not limited to, The Common Mind, Republicanism, A Theory of Freedom, Rules, Reasons, and Norms, Made with Words, Hobbes on Mind, Society and Politics, On the People's Terms, A Republican Theory and Model of Democracy, Just Freedom, A Moral, complex, a moral Compass in a Complex World, and The Robust Demands of the Good. And of course, the book that we will be discussing today, the Birth of Ethics, which I do recommend and I'll link to on the website. So, like I say, this is a two-parter. In the first part, we set up the challenge. By analogy, and it's a little bit of a vainglorious analogy, I'll grant you, but by analogy in Plato's Republic, the first part of the work is setting up the question. It's setting up the challenge to Socrates to defend justice, and his interlocutors lay out what would be required of him to meet that challenge. And then the rest of the book is the response to that challenge, and how Socrates believes that he has met it. By analogy, and again, I know it's a vainglorious analogy, in the first part of this interview, we set up an account of what a genealogical or reconstructive theory of morality would have to do to explain morality's role to us in an intuitive way, and we use the idea of a genealogical account of money as a metaphor to try and get it clear in the audience's mind what Professor Pettit will be endeavouring to achieve. In the second part, we try and meet that challenge. So, this is a single sustained argument over two episodes. I really hope you enjoy it. I got a lot out of this conversation, and as you might have heard in the last episode, the question and answer, some of the stuff that came out of this is stuff I've been thinking about since. So this made an impact on me, and I hope it does on you as well. Without further preamble then, it is my absolute pleasure to bring you back to the podcast, Professor Philip Pettit. joined today by Professor Philip Pettit is back on the podcast. Philip, thanks for coming back on. Real pleasure. So we're going to talk today about your upcoming work, The Birth of Ethics. Before we even get into that, um, you've been on the podcast before, but for listeners who didn't get a chance to catch that, how do you describe what you do and the issues that you like to write about? Oh, I guess I usually say that I work in political and moral philosophy, but also on the foundations, as I think of them, uh, of political and moral philosophy, which, you know, take you into um, 
well, what used to be called philosophical anthropology, you know, now more the philosophy of mind. So, uh, well, this book we're going to talk about today is in moral philosophy. A good deal of my work has obviously been in political philosophy, and uh, I continue also to work in philosophy of mind. Okay, cool. So, with Birth of Ethics, you said there was two big challenges or seeming contradictions that you were trying to make sense of in this work. To lay the ground, could you talk us through what were the central questions that you were trying to answer here? Well, I'm a naturalist. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, what science can tell us about the natural world basically grounds everything else that is true of the natural world. There are no special, obviously, spooky aspects to the to the world, as I think of it. Uh, but also, there are no essentially normative aspects to the world. I mean, we discover electrons and, and atoms and molecules, cells, and so on. But we don't ever discover out there in the world as science describes it. We don't ever discover a note. We don't ever discover an injunction as to what there should be as distinct from what there is. And the question is, how do we make sense of our thought about what there should be? Our thought in particular about ethics, about how we should behave in a world where there aren't shoulds to be found under the microscope. Right. Um, I guess one thing I... So in, in essence, you're saying, how do we make sense of claims about how we ought to act given that there's no external, there's no God coming in and laying down commandments, or there's no source of value outside of what we can observe that might fill that sort of role? Yes. I mean, as always, philosophers like to qualify, and I'm inclined to qualify, but let me say yes to that. Okay. So... Let's describe the basic thought experiment of this book, but then before we get into like the actual account, I want to go back and use the money and maybe the law example to, to explicate exactly what you're doing here. But you're in this work doing what you call a reconstruction account, right? Could you tell us broadly how you're approaching this? Well, you mentioned money, and I think that the standard account of money is a good way into the notion of a reconstructive account, or what I call a genealogical account. As in, you know, famously Nietzsche wrote on the genealogy of morals. His was a debunking genealogy that undermines, in a way, the aspirations that we might have for morals or for ethics. What I'm attempting in this book is more a constructive rather than a deconstructive, a positive rather than negative um, reconstruction. But in order to understand the notion of reconstruction, just think about the standard response of an economist to the question, it's first-year economics really in university, what is money? And it is a slightly, that's a slightly puzzling question. You sort of think, yeah, what is money? I mean, it you don't trip over it, so to speak. It's part of the social institution. But what, ex- what exactly is it? And the standard way that emerged of explaining money is precisely a reconstructive or a genealogical way of explaining it. So you're asked to imagine, and it's counterfactual, this is not history. You're asked to imagine a society where there is no money in existence. But people in that society this counterfactual world we're imagining, are just like us. 
in being, you know, moderately altruistic, but only moderately altruistic, and in operating the world of scarce goods, uh, and where they, of course, want to exchange goods in order to do as well as possible for themselves, to sell their goods or their services and get some goods or services in response. If you're imagining that in a, let's call it a barter society, this counterfactual world, then you see immediately people in that world would face enormous difficulties. Let's suppose I raise puppies, and what? You make uh, baskets, you weave baskets. Um, I want a basket, um, and I go to you and I offer you a puppy, you say, but I don't want a puppy. Well, we're not going to make an exchange. Now, in order to get a basket in a world of pure barter, I've got to find somebody who makes baskets and who wants a puppy, if that's all that I've got to, to sell. So you're going to have a real difficulty in establishing connections between would-be sellers and would-be purchasers. Now, the story in economics, and you know, it's backed up with uh, all sorts of detail, is that in most societies of that kind, um, it will be very likely not necessary, but very likely to happen, that at some point it would be clear to everyone that there was a particular commodity that everyone was happy to have, mainly because most people or many people wanted that commodity. And so if I can get a hold of that commodity or maybe IOUs in that commodity from a reliable producer, then I can use that to sell to somebody else for what I want. And that person, even if he doesn't want the commodity itself, will know somebody who does and will be happy to receive it. Now, what commodity might this be? Well, gold, of course, is one possibility, and arguably in some societies that did emerge as this preferred commodity in exchange. So people like to have gold that they could exchange in barter, or they like to have IOUs in gold from the, well, the goldsmiths, right, later to become the bankers, so to speak, who've got enough gold to be able to give you an IOU in return for whatever you give them, and thereby um, you can trade that IOU. And so you can imagine a society, and it's not just gold, but, you know, many societies um, in Ireland, for example, prehistorically by many accounts, and certainly in parts of Africa, uh, cattle were that sort of commodity. Everybody wanted them. Not a great commodity to trade because they're not very <laughs> <laughs> portable, you know. And, but in, you know, post-World War Berlin and World War II Berlin, by all accounts, cigarettes became that sort of commodity. By some accounts, in many prisons, cigarettes are the preferred commodity or have been. So that everyone wants them or wants IOUs in them because when they hold them, they can then they can use them to trade. I want your basket. Well, look, I've got some gold or cattle <laughs> or um, or I've got some cigarettes and I trade them and you're happy to take them because you'll always know somebody that will be able to, uh, will want to receive them or they'll know somebody will want to receive them. So they'll be tradable. Now, at that point, what happens? Well, what happens is that that preferred commodity, let's suppose gold, becomes essentially, it's a means of exchange. We each have it or seek it, or seek IOUs in it, in order to be able to exchange what we want. But equally, of course, it becomes a means whereby prices are put on things. You know, so for example, a basket is worth so many cigarettes, or so much gold, or whatever it might be. Um, 
So it becomes a metric of price, as we say, as well as a means of exchange. But it also becomes a a means of storing wealth, doesn't it? You can you can hoard the cigarettes or the gold or the cattle against the rainy day, so to speak, or just because you're a natural hoarder and thereby become wealthy. And the economic story is a story in which that's how money might have emerged in this counterfactual world. And then you're invited to ask, well, okay, that's a counterfactual world we're talking about. It may not be the historical world. Actually, many histories of money say it did not begin that way. Nonetheless, we can then offer the following sort of hypothesis. If that's how money could have emerged in that world, if that's what money is in that world, essentially a means of exchange, a means of storing wealth, and a metric of price, well, maybe that's what money is in our world. And, of course, you move immediately into our world. Yeah, that becomes a good sort of theory of money. That's maybe what it is. And now notice, of course, to tell the story, you'd have to bring it much further, as in the IOUs take over in great part from the original commodity, be it precious metal or whatever, and we move into the sort of world we're familiar with. Eventually, the IOUs are not backed by any good at all, but by the performance of the economy as monitored by a government. But that's that's way down the track. The essential idea is this gives you a candidate for what money is. It's a counterfactual way of getting at the nature of money. So I, I, I really like this one, and this is one that I've actually spent a certain amount of time thinking about. I want to just real quick make a few points about that story that I see as mapping onto the story you tell about the development of ethics, and just jump in if you think I'm getting it wrong or you've got anything to add. But the first one is, as you mentioned, it's it may well be ahistorical. Like, that might not be how money emerged, and it doesn't matter. That's not what we're doing with the story, right? The other one is, people are narrative beings. We understand stories. So if what I'm trying to communicate to you about money is that it is a medium of exchange and price setting that is sort of floated by mutual consent, then... I can just say that to you, but that's going to be much less more impactful, much less able to be understood than if you get this narrative behind it. Even if the narrative is ahistorical, that's that's what's going to make it go in. And then the final point, which I think is analogous between money and the story you tell, is it kind of takes the spookiness out of the system. In that, I, I think there's an instinct. I, I mean... We're all natural dualists, right? We want to think there's something outside of our world coming in and telling us to be moral. And also, I think people retain the instinct with money that there's some sort of intrinsic worth there. But to take your story to the end, you can have a society that has a gold-backed currency where every single bit of gold is buried underground in a vault and no one actually, you know, just say gold jewelry's gone out of fashion, nobody actually wants it anymore right? And then you can make the move to fiat currency. And a lot of people, a lot of really smart people can't get it through their heads that there's no essential difference, or the only difference is between the management of the system, between a fiat currency and a currency that's still tied to gold, because they're still retaining the impulse of some sort of spookiness. They're still retaining the impulse. A lot of people just can't get it through their head that it's no intrinsic property of the gold that gives it its value. 
It's that we all agree it has a certain value. And if that agreement changes, say if someone digs up more gold or a ship carrying gold sinks, then the value that we place on it will change. But the, the gold itself hasn't changed. It's our collective agreement of what it's worth that's changed. And I think that maps onto the, the account you're giving of morals in that it takes the spookiness out. Or at least that's what it's trying to do there. Did that all make sense? Absolutely. So on those points you mentioned, it's, a, it's a, an as-if history, a counterfactual history. It's not actual history. But that really doesn't particularly matter. It's actually a way of doing something that, as you said, you might have done by abstract analysis. Like, I might have sat down with you and said, okay, Toby, let, let's work out what exactly do we mean by money? I mean, what's the concept of money and what does that concept refer to? And we might have looked at different examples and said, well, look, would that count as money? Would this count as money? And we might eventually, by means of analysis and reflection, work out that, yeah, you know, anything that counts as a, as a medium of exchange, a metric of price, and a means of storing wealth, you know, that's really what we mean by money. And, of course, in that sense, money could be anything. Um, we might have done it that way, but the narrative way, as you describe it, even though it's counterfactual, actually takes you to that conclusion with much greater ease, and not just that, but much greater vividness, you know, because you've got into the way in which it came about. I mean, there's a long tradition in philosophy of saying that the things we best understand are the things we understand how to make. I mean, even Hobbes in the 17th century is a nice example. He says, look, you can look at circles all day long and wonder about what's a circle. But it's only when you, you realize you learn how to make a circle with a compass that you really grasp, as it were, what a, what a circle, uh, you get an immediate grasp of what a circle is because you learned how to make it. Now, in this way, you've learned not so much how to make money as how money would have come about. That's much more vivid, and it takes you to the same terminus. It takes you to that conception of the role that money plays, why it has a big part in our society, given our interest in exchange and so on, and why it's such a resilient feature of our society. It's not likely to go away tomorrow. Now, the last point you mentioned is spot on, too. What I like about that sort of story is it does take the mystery. It demystifies and money. There's nothing sort of, ooh, ah, you know, so there's nothing eerie or, well, it's intriguing, actually, but it's lost the sort of mystical intrigue. You know, you, you got to the bottom of this, you feel. There's a, lot and, of un, uh, there's a lot of unknowns, like we don't know, you know, like it's, let's say it's a gold economy. You might start a mine tomorrow, dig up more gold, and that'll change the price. So there's stuff we don't know, but there's nothing that's fundamentally woo-woo about it. It's exactly. all within exactly. a naturalistic paradigm. Yeah. And it enables you to explain, and that's where I said, you know, as we go on in our contemporary societies, it enables you to explain why gold would have played an important part very early on, a very important part. In the 17th century, um, I think led by a Swedish bank, uh, we got this, um, um, this arrangement whereby a bank, the goldsmith, doesn't actually hold enough gold that he'd be able or she'd be able to cash out every IOU brought in, every banknote. You just have to have 
enough to cover about 10% on the assumption that not everyone will want their IOUs at once. There won't be a bank run, in other words. That's the first stage. So the IOUs begin to be far more numerous, so to speak, than the goal that backs them. And then at a certain point, you realize that actually these IOUs are fairly autonomous insofar as their exchange value has been established. The economy is fairly well run, so there's not wild inflation or deflation. And at a certain point, it's really all just our confidence in one another and in one another's economies that really makes these IOUs, this money, and of course, it can have the form of banknotes, but also of checks and of credits and credit cards and so on, uh, that makes it stable and operate as money. And at that point, you realize that the goal was, it may have been essential as a way of getting there. You know, it may have been a ladder that was needed to get people to have money, but it's not necessary in order to sustain money. And that's what really mystifies people a lot, is the, this lack of connection with the, with the gold. Some even think it's heinous. It's a sort of uh, an offense against nature. But this sort of story makes it so all the spookiness goes. That's great. And I, I always felt, we, couldn't we do the same thing for ethics or something? As a final point to Bridges on, it's, it's not like understanding what money is. It doesn't tell you what like the interest rate should be or anything like that but it does set certain parameters to the discussion and like i say i think people really can't get it through their heads that a gold-backed currency is different in type but not in kind to a fiat currency in both because i think people feel like a fiat currency i'm using big scare quotes here isn't real right because it's just by mutual agreement but gold isn't real by the same right. standard it's just mutual agreement that yeah. it feels like you've taken the ghost out of the machine but there was never a ghost in the machine to begin with <laughs> and let's yeah. do the same for ethics because i think people feel like there must be a ghost in the machine and the co- the supposed contradiction between a naturalistic world and ethics lies in the view that ethics must have something spooky in it and a naturalistic world doesn't admit spooky things, therefore it doesn't admit ethics. But that's yes. that's just a faulty premise. If we grant that there aren't spooky things, or at least we don't have good reason to believe in them, then yes. any a naturalistic world is just our foundational truth, and any account we develop has to develop within it, right? Absolutely, yes. That, uh, that's. I mean, just as with the money case, uh, we take the world to be full of natural stuff and objects like gold, for example, various metals, cattle, cigarettes, for that matter. What's money? Well, what money we now see is something that uh, finds a perfectly comfortable home in that world, precisely, once you understand the role it's playing for us human beings. Now, in the same way with ethics, the idea is that there is something slightly spooky at first sight about ethics. Can we find a home for ethical truths in this naturalistic world without appealing to anything spooky? And I think there are two big problems in ethics, and that's what I, these are the two main problems I really focus the book around. Uh, One is the problem of where where does the notion, well, I call them family of desirability concepts come from? 
Now, these are concepts to do with what it's right to do, what it's uh, proper to do, appropriate to do, good to do, what you ought to do, what you're obliged to do. Where did these come from? Wherever such a concept applies, we can say that we think of it, that it's desirable that we do such and such, even if it's not attractive, even if it's not what we're actually currently drawn to doing, something else, maybe what we ought to do, maybe what it's right to do, in short, maybe what it is desirable to do. So you don't find desirability under the microscope, or you don't find it out in the field, you know. You don't find it in the starry heavens when you turn your telescope there. So where on earth do desirability concepts come from? That's the one sort of big problem. And the other big problem is, we look at one another and we say, you ought to have done that, I say to you. It was desirable that you should have done that. I'm not saying to you, it's, I might say to you, you sh- it, it's desi- it would have been desirable to have had a scientific education. Maybe you didn't have one. That doesn't sort of instruct you to do anything. But if I say to some, something to you like, you ought to have told the truth, then I'm holding you responsible for not telling the truth. I'm not holding you responsible for not having had a scientific education. That's all in the past. But when I say you ought to tell the truth or you ought to have told the truth, when I blame you, I'm suggesting that you had free will, that there was a sense in which you were poised before that action, and regardless of the fact that you're made up of uh, chemical and biological stuff, and if we understand our science properly, you're primed one way or the other, at a mechanical, at a naturalistic level, still, I want to say, it was true of you in some sense that you could have done other than you did. You told a lie, but you could have told the truth. That's the responsibility family. So desirability concepts and responsibility concepts, where do they get a grip in this naturalistic world? And what do they refer us to? Those are the two big sort of cluster problems in making sense of ethics. I want to put a flag in something that we're going to come back to, because when you use the words free will, I think a lot of people are going to um, say, well, hang on, you just said you're going to create a non-spooky account, and that sounds like you've just put something pretty damn spooky in right there so flag goes in there we're revisiting that but let's but let's let's start at the beginning which i guess for your account is language right like language would be a prerequisite for getting the machinery up and running in that if we didn't have this you wouldn't be able to tell the same story of how we get to it your starting point is that we can communicate to each other we can make truth claims about the world and that even if those truth claims initially might lack normative content, there's no ought in them, that's still going to set the machinery up and running that'll get us there eventually, right? Well, that is the story I tell. It's not so much that I argue that language is essential as that the, um, the counterfactual story I tell, the genealogy of ethics that I offer, the reconstruction begins with a counterfactual world where people have language, but they use it solely to report to one another on how things are. So, for example, I assume that in this world, people, and this surely is true of us as a species, have to rely on one another in order to get what they individually want. 
They're not atoms. They exist in the matrix of mutual reliance. Now, in a world of mutual reliance, and I think that's perfectly naturalistic to suppose that our species is certainly mutually reliant in that way. In that world, it would have been very important for people to communicate to others uh, about, for example, where they found food and to communicate truthfully, like uh, you know where the fish are running, I know where the uh, the fruit is um, actually um, uh, ripe and fit for picking. Um, you ask me where the fruit is, I tell you. I ask you where the fish is, you tell me. It's incredibly important in that world, of course, of mutual reliance, that we're going to share that sort of information. That's the world that I begin from. Um, now, it's not to say that I have an absolute proof that without language, human beings couldn't have gotten to ethics. I just think this is a very natural story about how they could have got to ethics. And we know that language emerged at some point in the evolution of our species, probably in the last 200,000 years, um, and properly maybe only 100,000 years ago. Uh, we know that it emerged. And my story is this. Imagine that these creatures, in this counterfactual world, because we don't know the actual history well, these creatures who are like us in every respect, you know, psychologically and so on, and, and they have a language in which to report to one another about how things are, and they're mutually reliant. This is a matter that they're all aware of, deeply dependent on one another, but they don't yet talk the language of desirability or responsibility or think the thoughts that go with desirability and responsibility. They don't think about what ought to be the case. They think what's attractive. They don't talk the responsibility talk. Um, and the question is, can we see in this world uh, problems they would have faced such that they'd be likely to have responded to them in an unplanned way after a certain pattern, just as the people in the counterfactual barter world would respond to the need to make exchanges, and can we see then how those adjustments as they aggregate across the society and lead to further adjustments would eventually lead people to a point where they would have a reason to use a word that corresponds very closely to the sort of words we use in the desirability family, and equally they would have useful words that correspond to words in our responsibility family. That's the, the general picture. I should so, say the general project. Okay, so help me get off the ground here. Like, once you get desirability, I can see how you get from that to responsibility. And I can see... I can see how you get desirability in an individual sense. I mean, this is moral consequentialism 101, right? Like, we know we don't like pain. And if you ask, well, why don't we like pain? You've just kind of hit philosophical rock bottom. Like, we, this is just... And we can ascribe language to that. We can ascribe words which are very vague and imprecise and poorly defined to say pain is not desirable, or other conscious experiences are desirable. And because of what language is and how it operates phenomenologically, we can make what economists tell us we can't, interpersonal comparisons of utility, in that I can say, I feel pain, I don't want to feel pain, and that language allows you in some loose sense to access 
my mind, right? Or at least get a representation of it. But then you want to go... F so, so language will give us the ability to make desirability statements about what I want. You want to go further and say that it will naturally arise that we will be able to make desirability statements in general, globally, or for the community, or for a set group of people. Talk, talk me through how you get from A to B there. Well, let me say a couple of things. I, I <laughs> Yeah, sorry, that, that was kind of like a I'm big not, question. I'm not sure that there is such an easy step from desirability to responsibility, but we'll come back to that later. So let's start with the desirability. First of all, remember, if we're talking about... Um, how these imaginary human beings uh, would come, would enter ethical space, as you might put it. It's not going to be enough that they, for example, behave in ethical ways. They behave, say, altruistically. Uh, you didn't raise this, but it's worth stressing because lots of animals behave quite altruistically. Um, you know, there are stories about why they would do it, but on the face of it, they're behaving ethically. But to be an ethical species, not just enough that you behave, so to speak, ethically, but that you've got, you do so because of the ethical reasons you see for behaving that way. And that's why the desirability concepts are necessary. So the first focus is on how you get to think in terms of what is desirable for me, for us, for you. And, and th that's what we've got to, got, got to explain. Now, of course, Everybody feels pain. Animals feel pain. I have no doubt at all about that. And they shrink from it, as these creatures who are imagining would have shrunk from pain as well. And they would certainly have had sympathetic responses to one another, being the sort of species we are, of offering sympathy or um, pity or, you know, support in that, uh, in that pain. That's ethical behavior. But what we're looking for is, where would they come to think in ethical terms? Where would they come to form ethical thoughts about what ought to be the case, what is right for them to do, what is obligatory for them to do, or indeed what is permitted for them to do. And here's the, I'm going to have to just tell you one little element in, I wish the book were much shorter, you know, I wish I could have done it in 100 pages, it's, it's rather longer than that. And unfortunately, the fault is, I think, in reality, not in the book, at least I hope so. Uh, it is quite complex. But let me just give you the first sort of element in the emergence of desirability concepts. So in this world, as I think of it, uh, people are going to be very interested in communicating to others, for example, that uh, you can depend on me, for example, to tell the truth, or you can depend on me not to be violent with you, or you can depend on me even to come to your assistance if somebody else is so they've got to communicate about their own attitudes, right? They've got to communicate about their own beliefs even, but they've also got to communicate about their own desires and their, let's stick with desires, okay? So I want to persuade you that I'm someone who cares about, say, peace between us, about nonviolence or whatever it might be. Of course, if I have language uh, and I'm capable of reporting with language, and that's the assumption we start from, then I can report to you that uh, actually you should know about me that I, I think my, my desires really are for a peaceful relationship between the two of us. So now you've got to rely on my words. Am I telling you the truth in telling you this? Well, you know, one thing 
one problem with this is that uh, if I'm just reporting on my attitudes, um, then I'm always going to be able to explain the fact that I may not seem to have enacted those attitudes. I may not seem to have behaved as those attitudes would lead me to behave in the future by saying, oh, well, you know, I must have got myself wrong there for a moment. You know, uh, I'm mistaken about my about my beliefs or about my desires. You ask me, do I trust Jones, right? And I say, yeah, yeah, I trust Jones. But then you find me behaving as if I didn't trust him. And um, you complain to me, or you, you're inclined to now regard me as someone who's not a truth teller. I told you I believed he was trustworthy. I don't behave as if he's trustworthy. It looks like I'm proven to be a liar. Uh, and you rebuke me. Well, rebuke is already a normative word. You, I'm afraid now you're going to regard me as, as not a truth teller, not going to rely on me in the future. But I hasten to say, look, I'm sorry, I thought I treated Jones as trustworthy, but I was wrong about myself. Now, that means I can let myself off the hook. But it turns out with language, we immediately have a way of raising the stakes and making the communication of our own attitudes to others more credible than they would be if we were just reporting on ourselves in the way in which you might report on a third person, the way in which you might say to you, well, Smith believes that Jones is trustworthy, doesn't behave like that. I said, you all must have gotten Smith wrong. The thing is, I can, I have to report on Smith and I have to be, therefore, open to the excuse of uh, being able to say later, in the event of miscommunication, I got Smith wrong. But it turns out that I can do something different in the case of reporting or communicating about myself. So suppose I say to you something like, Jones is trustworthy. I make up my mind at that point when you ask me about whether he's trustworthy or not. And I indicate to you that I've made up my mind Jones is trustworthy. Now, one thing interesting about that is that if later it turns out I don't behave as if Jones is trustworthy and you're inclined to give up on me, I can't say to you, oh, oh, sorry, I got myself wrong. Because when you communicate in language that you have a belief, like Jones is trustworthy, by expressing that belief, Jones is trustworthy, rather than reporting it, as in, I think I believe that Jones is trustworthy, then you foreclose that excuse. You can't now get off the hook later by saying you got yourself wrong. But now, if you ask me, is Jones trustworthy? And I want you to believe me because I want you to reckon, treat me as someone reliable that you love future dealings with, I can make my words more expensive, less cheap than they would have been had I said, I think he's trustworthy. I think I believe he's trustworthy. If I say, yeah, he's trustworthy, that's expressing the belief, not reporting it. And that's immediately available to us as language users. I call that, I'm avowing the belief. I'm standing over it. And you recognize that, hey, it's as if I've sort of made it more expensive for for myself to communicate my attitude because I won't be able to get off the reputational hook so easily 
as I would have been able to do had I merely reported the belief. Now, in this world I'm imagining, I take it that people are going to be very anxious to get others to rely on them because it's only if others are prepared to rely on them that they can make do business with others, can get them to persuade them to do things together, can rely on them in turn for assistance, get them, you know, to build a relationship. So it's going to be very important for them to communicate the beliefs they have, the attitudes they have. And they can do that by expressing those attitudes or avowing those attitudes. Now, I give them the example of just saying, Jones is trustworthy, avowing the belief rather than reporting it. But equally, you ask me, um, do, do you like hunting together? You know, are you, are you ready to go hunting with me tomorrow, for example? I'll delay hunting today in order for you to come hunting with me tomorrow. You've got to be, I've got to express my attitude of being willing to hunt with you in such a way that makes me maximally credible. If I say to you, yeah, I think I would like to go hunting with you tomorrow, you recognize that if I don't turn up and you're left on your own, I can always say, oh, you know, I must have got myself wrong, you know, like I could have gotten Smith wrong and saying he wants to go hunting with you. But if I say to you, I'll go hunting with you, you can depend on me, then it's clear to you, it's clear to both of us, that I won't be able to get off the reputational hoop by saying tomorrow if I don't turn up, oh, I must have gotten myself wrong because I've expressed my willingness to go hunting with you. I've avowed my desire to go hunting with you. In fact, I can go one better. Not only can I make it impossible for me to claim I must have gotten myself wrong. I also make it impossible for me to claim I changed my mind since I spoke to you. That's why I didn't turn up. I can make a promise, in other words, or a pledge. I can pledge my intention as well as avowing my intention by saying, I'll be there, depend on me. Now, under normal conventions that would emerge in the societies, I say, you're going to find my words very credible because you realize they're quite expensive. I put my reputation at stake in a much heavier way than if I just reported on myself, as I might report on a third person, that I actually am willing to go hunting with you tomorrow. So the first step in this, as were, slow entry, and I'm sorry to take so long over it, into the ethical space, is to understand that these creatures, being anxious to get one another to accept, believe in their words, would begin to avow their attitudes rather than merely reporting them in the sense of communicating their attitudes in a way that reduces the number of excuses they can appeal to later in order to get off the reputational hook. So they're going to develop a habit of making pledges to one another, as in, you can depend on me, I'll be there at the hunt, I'll be there to help you with the fishing, I'll, I'll be there to look after the children when you go, you know, gathering the fruit or whatever it might be. Um, and they come to depend on one another's words. And of course, if I incur that extra cost by pledging an intention to you rather than reporting it, and I then time after time again, live up to my words. I do prove faithful 
We're going to build bonds of mutual reliance on one another, and that's going to be really crucial. Now, we haven't yet got to ethics, but I think that's a first step. Right, because that... Okay, I, I thought of a metaphor for this while you were speaking. I used to play poker a whole bunch. Terrible habit, kids. Don't do it. I haven't played for yeah. money in years. <laughs> but it's a bit like if I make a bet in poker, I'm doing two things. There's a sort of economic one, and then there's like a communication one. And tell me if you think the analogy holds. One is I'm saying I am tying myself to a certain truth claim about the world, namely that I have good hands, right? Yes. And I'm showing you yes. that that belief is credible by the fact that if it's not, I stand to lose this. Yes, right? yes, yes. And, and I'm making a communication to you. And yes. in this, I guess, my cards, which you can't see, would be my actual belief states. Yes. Right? Yeah, in yeah, that you exactly. don't have direct access to my belief states, but I can, I can signal it to you by saying, this is what I'm willing to lose on that, right? And likewise, when you play poker... You come, if you play repeated hands again and again and again, you'll come to an understanding that, oh, when Philip bets, and sometimes you'll be in a position to see that it's true, sometimes you won't, but the times we're able to see that it's true, you generally have the cards to back up your bet, and sometimes you won't. And then other people at the table, Tom at the table, bets every hand, sometimes he has the cards and sometimes he doesn't. Now, in the end, in spite of what most people think about, oh, poker's all about bluffing, bluffing every hand is a bad strategy. You will lose yes. money. And Tom yeah. will eventually not get the same reciprocal interaction of others. So I don't know if that made sense as a metaphor. But that gets you to common practices. It gets you... It doesn't really get you to an ought. It gets you to, like, it is desirable in that to make promises and hold them in the same way as it's desirable in poker to make bets in a sensible way and generally to bet when you have a good hand. But you'd want, you'd want to get it a bit thicker and say, you sh if an opportunity came up to bet when you don't have a good hand and you could get away with it, you would still want to. It's the idea of the repeated iterations. Yeah. Good. So I think that's a great metaphor in one way, and I use it, as you know, in the book, not the poker, but the betting. But in another way, it's slightly misleading. Here's a, it's a great metaphor in the following sense. When I avow a belief or a desire, or when I pledge an intention, I'm betting on myself from your point of view. I'm betting on myself to act according to my words. If I avow a belief, I'm betting on myself to act as that belief would make me liable to act. I avow the belief that Jones is trustworthy. I'm betting on the fact that I will behave as if he's trustworthy in future. If I pledge an intention to be at the hunt with you tomorrow, I'm doing even more than that. I'm, I'm betting again that I will be there. And in each case, I'm staking my reputation. Because in the first case, I've signaled that I will not be able to excuse any failure by saying that I got myself wrong. In the second case, I'm signaling that I can't excuse um, my behavior if I fail to turn up at the hunt either by saying I got myself wrong or by saying I changed my mind. I can't use either the misleading mind or the changed mind excuse. So there is a stake 
in, in poker, it's the money you put forward. Here, it's your reputation you put on the line. You stake your reputation. And what I'm saying is that these people would have found it extremely natural, intelligible, rational, given their makeup, to actually make commitments of that kind. In fact, game theorists call this a commitment, don't they? A commitment is when you say something and then you've got a side bet to indicate that you can be relied upon to live up to what you say. In poker, it's the money on the table. The only slight um, unhappiness I have with the poker analogy is that you don't give up playing poker with someone just because you realize he cheated or bluffed, as we say, on the last in the last round or whatever. In fact, you expect very good poker players to know exactly when to cheat. You don't give up on them as a poker player if they cheat. But my suggestion is, with people in this community, cheating is going to be very expensive if it's discovered. Of course, people will certainly cheat, as human beings have always done. Uh, but only when there's a chance of getting away with it or some of them won't meet again or whatever. But in this community we're imagining, I take it that cheaters are going to come off second best and that it's going to become a matter of practice that people will avow and pledge, make avowals and pledges to one another, make commitments in that purely non-normative sense to one another as a matter of developing their mutually reliant society. And now it's at that point, I think, that we, and I am jumping some stages, but it's at that point, I think, the notion of desirability concepts make an entry. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If this episode left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, please do return next week to see how Professor Pettit grounds his account of morality. I'm really excited to bring you that second part. They come out every week on Saturdays. So next week, the next one will be out. And then we have a whole bunch of really interesting guests coming on after that. I'll go over that um, at the end of next episode. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, there's a few different ways you can support it. You can share episodes. That just helps get the word out there. That's always really appreciated. All the growth we've had, we're coming up almost on a year now. This will be our 41st episode. Almost all the growth we've had is from people sharing. So that's always really appreciated. Please keep doing that. Also, stuff like leaving positive reviews on iTunes helps. Thank you to everyone who does that. And if you're able to support on a more monetary basis, then we have a Patreon site. Patreon is an account where you can just donate whatever amount you want to the providers of free online content. So you can look up patreon.com slash political philosophy podcast. The links to that, as well as to follow us on social media and subscribe on iTunes, are all on the website as well, which is politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the second part of this. Thank you.